0: okay so welcome to the truth to power show on radio free brooklyn i'm your host vjr nathan and with us today is co-host bruce whitaker welcome bruce
1: good, good morning good morning vj good, good
0: morning and our special guest today is um randall horden whose past honors include uh being the bea gonzalez poetry award uh, nom- uh winner uh national endowment of the arts fellowship and literature and most recently, GLCA New Writer's Award for Creative Nonfiction for Hook, a memoir published by Augury Books, Brooklyn Arts Press. His previous works include poetry collections, Definition of Place, The Lingua of France of 9th Street, both with Main Street Rag and Pitch Dark Anarchy, um, Tri-Quarterly, New Northwestern University Press. His latest poetry collection, um, 289-128 will be published by the University of Kentucky Press in fall 2020. Horne is professor of English at the University of New Haven. He is also a member of the experimental performance group Heroes or Gang Leaders, which received the 2018 American Book Award in Oral Literature. Originally from Birmingham, uh, Alabama, he now resides in New Jersey.
2: All right, welcome, Randall. Thanks for having me, BJ, and welcome, and good morning to you. Good morning, good morning.
0: so why don't we start the conversation off with your memoir and uh, my main question is about like when you've gone through a big experience and you've kind of changed or you've gone through this transformation how you're able to navigate talking about your past self and your current self and and the creativity involved in navigating that you know what you were before and now what you feel like you've become if that's and tell us a little bit about that process yeah
2: yeah well that's actually is a Interesting process, but it's also a draining process and it's a revelatory process. So it's a lot of the different emotions um, when you sort of come at um, a memoir, especially when you're talking about sort of these traumatic or odorous experiences that one experiences at some point in their life and then they sort of like um, turn a corner um, and their life sort of takes on another trajectory. But at the same time, um, when you on the other side and you're sort of trying to remember or you're sort of trying to write about that experience, not only for, you know, the act of writing within itself, but also as a self as a sort of a self-healing mechanism as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So what happens is, um, during that process, I think a lot of times, you know, the thing with memoir is it's interesting because you have to sort of like relive the experience, right? In some kind of way and it has to sort of be recreated. Um, but then also within that reliving of that experience, I think the idea of going back to the piece that you're sort of working on, the editing process, the going back daily, the sort of constant revisitation of those things, those moments, those, you know, those little things that sort of, you know, sort of created the, um, the path that, that's, that you had to sort of follow. And sometimes those are very difficult to sort of, you know, sort of be in those spaces. So a lot of times what happens is you find yourself becoming, you know, being mentally back in that place where you try to leave. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And so you become, it's interesting like that. And so that's the only, that's the sort of the thing with memoir that sort of, if you're really getting into like what you're trying to talk about, I think you have to be affected in that way, you know? Um, and I think if you're affected that way, I think your readers want to sort of like, at some point follow along, I would hope, um, no.
0: but yeah. if, Why don't yeah. also want I read a description of the Hooker memoir, just to give listeners a chance to understand what it's about. So there's a product ahead. description on the, uh, page on the Amazon page, Hooker memoir is a gripping story of transformation without excuse or indulges, indulgence author and educator, Randall Horton explores his downward spiral from unassuming Howard University undergraduate to homeless drug addict, international cocaine smuggler, and incarcerated felon, before showing us the redemptive role that writing literature played in helping him reclaim his life. The multi-layered narrative bridges past and present through both the vivid portrayal of Horton's sig- singular experiences, as correspondence and letters the anonymous LXXX, a Latina woman uh, awaiting trial, hook explores race and social construction in america the forgotten lives within the prison industrial complex and the resilience of the human spirit does that really capture do you feel like it captures what the what your intention was or is anything you'd like to add to that description i think
2: it actually it sort of definitely captures everything because all of the things that have been and done Um, yeah I don't think it's sort of hyperbole. If anything, I think a lot of stuff was left out. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you. Get
0: a sense. So yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, so so yeah, there is this sort of uh, multi-layered narrative, and then there's so. It's, it's an epistolary form? And So what you have is a a correspondence of letters that goes back and forth between me and this woman that's incarcerated in Brooklyn. Um, in the in the Brooklyn B M was it BMC, BMC DC? uh the Brooklyn um, Federal Holding Center in Brooklyn right um and so she's she's there waiting trial on 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 some uh, some charges and so what happens is we we develop a a, car, a letter correspondence um, going back and forth that talks about our lives how they intersect in terms of um um incarceration but also the things that led us up to that incarceration being drugs. Um, sort of the fast life on the streets um, and all of those things, right? And so one of the things that sort of ent- the ent- the bridge right there is that we both were in um, SUNY Albany at the same time, because she was a formerly incarcerated person as well. And so I was getting my PhD at the time. Um, and so we became friends. And so later on when she got a degree and went back to um, New York and I was in New Haven, um, there was a situation where she ended up getting incarcerated um with a, a, a boyfriend who was doing some, you know, some dealing drugs or whatever that she was un- unaware of But the consequence was that they the federal uh, they held her for four years almost no three and a half years Um with no charges Um, and so in doing that time because we were both literature english majors Well, she was undergrad and I was grad, but we still had the, you know sort of like the, the concept of literature So we began to sort of correspond and the letters was a way of escapism, right? But then along the way, I was also working on the memoir, right? And so the memoir became part of that whole thing. And so what you had is present tenses, the epistolaries, and then in past tense, sort of flashbacks, become sort of the things that we talk about. Um, you know, unassuming college person that sort of gets hooked up with drugs, and then goes on this sort of international escapade, you know, in Bahamas and South America, and then becomes homeless and. You know, goes through the whole gamut of things and then goes in incarceration and then tries to come back on the other side. So that's exactly what it is, yeah.
1: I was gonna ask, as you were working on this memoir and going back to that time and uh, looking back on it, what sorts of discoveries were there for you? And um, in, in the, in when did you know it was time to go back and, and relive that through this memoir process?
2: I always knew that I, I needed time to sort of distance myself between what had happened and then writing about it you know what I mean um and I think after I really wrote the first central piece um that sort of will become sort of like the nexus of the memoir I wrote a piece called father forgive me I was because I was always trying to so what so when I was incarcerated um my sentence was commuted right and so what happened was I was I was on a trajectory to do to do um, um, five years in um, Maryland and then another three years in Virginia because I had a probate probation violation um, and so what happened was I was I was. Um, Sort of befriended and taken under the wing of this lady in Montgomery County um, Health and Human Services named Bonnie Boswell who was doing some great work in terms of um, alternatives to incarceration So I happened to come through her county jail to Montgomery County Jail in where she was sort of working and we became um, we, we started working together. So she developed an interest in me and she said well when you get your time and you go to um, Upstate the prison, you know, we're gonna bring you back And so what happened was um, they called me back after probably almost three years. Um, And so there was a scene in the courtroom. So this is determining whether I'm gonna get out or I'm gonna end up having to do probably another five or six years, right? Um, And so my father, who was from Birmingham, was actually in the audience. I mean, uh, he was in the gallery that day. He had had flown up from uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And so what happens is, um, we go through the whole process and the, the district attorney is the DA is sort of like, you know Obviously opposing anything that has to do with rehabilitating someone Um, and especially me because he told me I had 38 years, to, you know to get my life together And I had failed to do that and he didn't see any reason why they should let me out of prison I just had no chance of redemption or redemptive quality And so, you know after he spoke my father got up, right and um he actually held court, man, for about 25 minutes, and you could hear a pin drop. So he started from when I was at birth, right? And he just took the he took the judge, and the people in the gallery through a whole, you know, narrative of me, of who I was, who we thought I was, who we knew I had to be, and what I could become. So you could hear a pin drop. My my lawyer was crying. Put it like this: I'm crying already because I can't hold <laughs> it. So. My lawyer's crying, the judge is misting in her eyes. I'm telling you, this is like some stuff you don't necessarily see a lot because when the judge granted my motion, right? um, The judge, I mean, the, um, the bailiff who took me back to my holding cell, he said, man, I've been sitting with that judge for almost 25 years. She's never done that, never done that. And so for me, I've always wanted to know how to sort of recapture that moment, right? Because it was the most powerful moment I've ever had up to that point in my life, and probably ever since. Totally. Um, just the emotion, the energy in that in their room that day, and the humanity that was able to sort of like come forward from the people that was listening and then the judge herself. Um, it was something that I, I could never forget. Um, and then, you know, you listen to someone who raised you from a child, begging someone to sort of give my child another chance. All of those things hurt you, man. They hit you right here, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, we're getting back to the point of why when I knew that it was time to sort of write. It's when I could actually articulate that Mm -hmm. in a a piece that I wrote. Because I've always wanted to sort of like talk about it and I knew it was a special moment, but I didn't know how to sort of come at it. It took almost 10 years for that, man. See what I'm saying? It took a long time for me to sort of really realize. And so when I did that, I was like, I started sort of on this journey um, um, to sort of like that self-discovery and sort of try to, and I, so then I sort of say, okay, I, I can start writing about this now. So that was the moment, totally. It's mm. called Father Forgive Me and it sort of appears later in the book, but it was actually one of the first pieces I wrote. Oh um, yeah, the second piece I wrote, the first piece I wrote was actually in prison, uh, but that was totally something. It, it, it appears in the sort of drug section when I was trying to explain what I used to do. But that's something totally different, but that was the piece that sort of got it. And
1: can can you kind of, we we teach creative nonfiction, and it's such a fascinating uh, field, which is evolving, I think, uh, fairly quickly. In a nonfiction context, how does material like that work? Um, where, Where do writers define the fiction, the nonfiction, the creative part of it? And uh, as you teach that subject and, and work with material like this, perhaps that, that students bring or that writers you work with bring, right. um, how does creative nonfiction work with, with things like this?
2: Well, I think it actually lends itself to actually even, it, 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 it's, it's the, it lends itself to these sort of narratives of sort of a way in which you can sort of um, bring the narrative to life. That for for lack of a better phrase, I guess I want to say, to bring the narrative to life because, like us, there's always the narrative to tell, and you can sit there and talk about it. But how do you sort of create three D, three dimensional experiences? And so here comes, and this is where the sort of um, the creative process comes in. This is why I always, when I'm teaching creative nonfiction, I always start with poetry before we even get to there. Mm-hmm. I always start with the poetic qualities, you know, the poetic characteristics that, you know, and so I want them to understand um, you know, the idea, the role that poetry and music and lyric plays in sort of like sort of like the writing of the story. Um, but also when you when you're trying to talk about things that sort of like are difficult in the past and and and, and, and some things need to be explained and, and you can't necessarily understand, you know, figure out how to explain those things and trying to get everything right. Here's where the, the idea of creativity and the art of the imagination, right, comes in. So you have to take the reader on like a sort of a, of, a, of a, a as if you're positing a moment, right? And you're thinking about something, but then it gives you license to go down and, and sort of imagine or sort of create this sort of fictional what-if scenarios and all of these things. So put it like this right now. In my first, in my next book, I'm working on a book, a piece called A Life in the Day of Sale 23, right? So basically. Because I always get to ask, people always ask me, ask me what it was like to be incarcerated and, you know, what did you do every day, right? And I never, you know. so there was something they got to thinking about. So how about I give you a life, of my life in the day of when I was in prison? And so it goes through the whole day. But also within the parts of that day, I'm going back and forth to my room and I'm bringing a fictional piece to life. So my character is a 16 year old protagonist and he's caught up in this whole cycle of drug dealing. But I'm trying to, exp- I'm trying to expose um, how young, 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 young black and brown bodies got sucked into sort of this sort of thing back in the 80s and the 90s of, of, of selling drugs and caught up in this whole cycle. And so I'm going somewhere with it. So it's, it tells a story, but it's fiction. So, the, but, the, but it's fictional, right? So I, I, I go, and you, and so I'm writing on the page and I bring it to life and then I stop. And I go back to my narrative of my day and I'm going to chow, I'm in the day room, then I come back into myself, and my my character comes back to life again. So you have to be so it's just as much as honest as it is the same creative nonfiction. You, the writer, i.e. the person who's writing, has to has to embrace the idea of creativity. So it's two things to say I'm doing it, but then you have to actually do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah. Well, let's segue into a little bit of your poetry practice and your upcoming book and how what's this is it and how your vibe in the poetry is and how you have developed your poetry yeah. practice what the subject matters are and all that kind of right thing. right but right. Yeah, you right. talked a little bit about it but it's one of the case people are
2: yeah well to you're, to talking, you're sure. talking about the the, um, the upcoming project yeah more so yeah
0: mostly the yeah upcoming, yeah
2: so generally yeah yeah i mean so it's actually been a sort of a process too i think as poets which we, which we hopefully you you know you learn from one book to the next and i think um uh, every book that I was writing sort of like positioned me to write this book, uh, especially mm-hmm. the one pitch dark Anarchy, which was 2013. Um, but, okay, 289128 was my department of corrections number uh, in Hagerstown, Maryland, right? Um, and I actually wasn't, didn't think I was gonna write this kind of book, believe it. It just sort of, that's how things sort of work sometimes because I'm I'm very aware of how the larger public and people in general, try to sort of put you in these boxes, these rubrics, like, oh, you must be the prison boy," So, which is very real too. And I don't necessarily know if I wanna be that, but I understand the idea of being that. So it's a hyper, it's sort of hypocritical, right? But I get it. So on one point on one part i have to be sort of a representation of that it you know, can be that can overcome something right because i think people need to see that they need to understand that somebody with seven felonies can you know actually get a phd and have you know full tenure be promoted the full professor can operate so one, you know so i think you know when i go into prisons and places like that adult detention centers i need for them to understand that this is not the next the, 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 the last part of their life or that your life is over so that representation I get but at the same time it's a double-edged sword because I am I'm, tr- I'm always constantly trying to distance myself um professionally I guess I don't even know professional is a word that I want to use but I'm sort of like I don't want to necessarily be put in this box like a you know oh you must be the prison poet and you know and so this which is why you know my first book I totally my first poetry book I waited for a long time before I even wrote about incarceration because I was very aware of how, and how they do that. How, you know, I say they, I mean, the literary community sort of push you in these boxes. And so you become the prison poet from now on. You become the Ethnish Knight. So Ethnish Knight, as much as I love him, right, you don't talk about some of the other stuff that he does. Oh, he's the prison poet. But, and that may not, and that may not be nothing that I can sort of change, but I'm very aware of it in, in sort of my next book, uh, in my essays, talk about that, that whole process of, of, of that double-edged sword, but anyway, getting back. So I didn't. So I, I begin. I got a couple of grant, um, um, fellowships and grants to sort of explore incarceration. Right. Um, one was through the University of Arizona Poetry Center, and I got one for the Civil Rights Corps um, in, in Washington D.C., which does a lot of stuff on bail reform and and challenging systemic injustices in the American um, criminal system. Um, then I got and another one. Um, from the Soze, from the Soze uh, Foundation um, to do the same thing. So all of these things sort of like led to sort of the, the, the sort of making of the book, right? Because I, I had these pieces that I was trying to sort of, so I said, okay, well, let's do this. When we're gonna do it, let's go all the way. To, uh, so which is, I took my Department of Corrections number and each, each section is framed as 289128. So, and the poems are sort of framed that way too. So basically, you never forget the idea of like being you know branded with a number whether you in prison or whether you're out of prison but the whole idea of the book is sort of like talk about the first section is property of the state The things that sort of happen with a singular narrative of this the singular voice of the two eight nine one two eight Which not necessarily mean because it talks about my life Everything doesn't have to be totally real. It's fictional too in some regards. So I think that you know should be said as well. And then the second part is like poet in residence, cell 23, right? So how do you be, how are you in concert? How are you in a cell? How can you imagine life outside of this? cell? what does the art of the imagination do? Because I'm in prison, does it mean I have to write about prison all the time? I don't know. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to fight against that. And so I'm so, so my, my speaker actually, you know, goes outside of the bars which contain him But at the same time, it tries to show the ways in which we are all contained in cells because we box ourselves off in terms of identity, in terms of color, in terms of so many things that are sort of boundary that we can't, you know, we can't probably even name them all. And then the last section um, is The Poet in New York, uh, which sort of is another meditation on obviously New York, but also the ideas of life after incarceration in some kind of way. So it's very, you know, it, it observes a lot of things um, and for me, the idea of language, um, how you sort of come at it, is very important to me. I'm always listening to the music. Um, I'm always I'm always interested in the artist's surprise. Um, I don't want you to see me come around the corner before I get there. I want to sneak up on you. <laughs> so, wow.
1: Could yeah. you yeah. sneak up on us with a poem or two at the moment? <laughs> no, I was just going to ask uh, if you could read a little bit. Yeah. Okay,
2: okay, that. let's see, let's see, I will read something from the first section, Um, and I guess I should ask one question, how are we for language?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, it's okay. I, I think All right, we, we're good together. then. Yeah.
2: Um. So, we'll, we'll, we'll read, now I need to get back to my um, view, hold on a second. Sure, sure.
0: Oh, here we go.
2: So This one's from the new book, or from the yeah, this yeah, this is from the this is from the new book. I read a, um a piece from it. Um, I, I can I can actually read your short section from the uh the new work that we're shopping right now, my agent. Um, yeah. And, um, and you can see sort of what I'm when I say that I don't necessarily try to distinguish between poetry and prose a lot of times. Um, okay, here we go. Um. And this one is called, um, from the first section, it's called Don't Trust the Process. So it's 289128, Don't Trust the Process. Wait and waiting and wait. Neck extend before God, you are now quite invisible, will not materialize through iron nor the ignorant. Nothing changes, nothing. Intake, property, medical, sees a piece of humanity. Each destination, a moral point converging toward a sale. Hidden in the open by a lie, no one actually believes unless given a grand tour via hands to unbreakable plastic behind the back pool top. No money, no phone call, no bail. Product for expenditure, or process as prosecution for the good of the people. Dante and Duncan said, the most abused of an unrighteous order, wrote the Soledad brother. Good people do not reside here. Screaming in the dark ocean, the body is not constitutional becomes more effective than yelling this setup ain't right okay and and here's one um, and so again two eight nine one two eight and it begins with or this malice thing never to be confused with justice right? Nothing symbolic, okay, dark is dark. Cage is cage, hunted and hunter are both in the literal. Make-belief in what-ifs do not exist, a lie. Nothing cryptic here, okay, rape is rape. Pray, must pray, no minute in the future safe from quiet insertions of a shank and masking tape. Okay, nothing here infinite. Only time is constant to the merciful and merciless. There are no allegories to hide behind. He slit his wrist mean he slit his fucking wrist. Okay, there's a cell with one window just before day. Dawn's early demise magnifies a dull mellow toilet, the cool water cooling two-canned sodas. Each wall a slab of soft gray cinder block. No posters featuring eroticized women with an exclusive and black tail. Okay, the wall that slits the light does not reveal nothing new ever. The expose, the changing same, always a holding. One window offers a gateway. My face pressed against the window in time rules this empire, okay? The mind held hostage by time. Mind and body conjoined twins. The other wall holds a frame. The frame holds a metal door to contain utter disbelief of the visible. Walls are gray, not like summer, but dark. Yes, there's darkness, okay?
1: Yeah. Yes, yeah, really, I, I had read that earlier and it's mm-hmm. so powerful. It's just uh, yeah. congratulations. Beautiful, Thanks,
2: beautiful. Thanks, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. We Like I said, we're trying to figure it out. Um, <laughs> trying to yeah. figure it out. Well, but yeah, yeah. man. Um, yeah, so what a
1: wonderful voice. Yeah, it's Thanks, interesting yeah. because I think
0: also when you think about one of our pre-interview questions is about um, what are most passionate in your life, what topics you talk about, the language aspect, Mm-hmm. And um, I think you wrote here, I'm always going against the dominant narrative that erase you rather than see you. I think it's so important to remember in poetry, we're, we're trying to define. Tell us a little bit more about how, like, you know, in language, how, you know, how you craft it in a way that makes certain things seen and certain things, you know, being able to see the you and what is that you know what does that really mean uh, how does right you- i
2: guess i, I think the, the the bigger thing is like i think you told me i think one of the questions you asked what is the unpopular belief or a, a yeah, popular yeah. attitude and it's and i and i said like i'm not as i'm not as in, as in love with the eyes as some people might think i would i am or would want me to be if that's the way to put it and it's not that i'm not and I tried to clarify this, of course. Like, it's not, I'm not against using the I, but I think you have to be very careful when you begin to talking about yourself that you you have to bring everything else with you mm. to the poem, too, besides the I. Your narrative necessarily can be enough, but don't ever think that it's enough, yeah. right? So that's my thing. And I think, um, for me, I'm very c- careful about those things when I'm coming to the poem. See, I my or the I, my per my I, which I bracket, like I'm talking about the eye, my eye. I. Um, I think that's the last piece of the poem a lot of times, even if I'm starting from a narrative place, but I'm thinking about everything else. And and so when I'm coming back to the poem, then I have to insert myself or have, or if I'm doing that, I think I need to sort of like understand what it is that I'm talking about first. And that way I, get a, I can give you a better experience. Now. That's just for me, you know what I mean, and so I can read other people's, and other people can do other things, and I'm just fine with that. And I think I think for me, just a personal choice of of, of always sort of going, you know, like I'm my mama like to tell the story, like I'm a premature baby, I came in seven months, so I'm never like I'm always moving, like I'm <laughs> I'm always trying to go somewhere. Um, and so I think at some point um, I became interested by the idea of what language could do. Um, And how can I sort of like um, change from book to book? Like, I don't want to write the same book five times. Mm. So that too. Um, And so how do I continue to sort of push myself to, 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 to sort of be the best I can be in terms of that? And so for me, there's a lot of things that go into like how I'm sort of talking about myself or the I or the you. I'm very aware of those things. That's what I, I guess that's the, the bigger problem is I don't want you to take, I, I don't, I, I warn and caution, you know, writers to taking that for granted. Like, oh, this is just where I'm going and this is just how you're supposed to take this. I think a little bit more needs, can go into that sometimes. And I think we can get lackadaisical and thinking that because I'm telling that this is my truth, that's all I need to do. I don't know. But for me, I think it's a little different. Well, the poets may be different. And so I have to respect everybody for what they do. But for me, I can. I'm always never sort of satisfied, um, and I'm always trying to figure out how can I sort of rethink the language that I'm sort of doing. So, and what I'm talking about, and how can I, you know, make that language sort of, you know, create other illusions, other images. So I'm very interested in what I call ghost enjambment, too, which is sort of like this way in which we look at, you know, the, the line integrity of the lines. And so I want my lines I want my lines to be able to hold their own integrity, but I want them to give you a false sense of that integrity as they go to the next line, or as they relate to what came before. So there's one of these, those like this multiple way of like reading or looking at the poem, or the, or the message. So there's a lot of messages within that single message. So also
0: what I'm getting know. at what you're saying is also that and tell me if this kind of what I'm hearing is that um, it's not just about you in the sense that we have the eye in the poem, the speaker in the poem, and then we have your truth. And then we have also the structures and the institutions and the soci- sociological movements that are happening around you. Right. I think. Do you like to call attention to those structures? Yes. And, and what extent is that? Like, it's less important about you as much as important about the
2: people Exactly. People that are, you know, yeah, like that's exactly, exactly what I'm to say it. Yeah. Exactly, Which, okay, yeah. yeah, right, yeah, okay, yeah.
1: I'd yeah. like to go to your comment about erasure and about uh, making people seen and how language can be a tool to help someone be seen. And I think it has something to do with this idea of the narrative eye as well um, mm. of, of how much you engage what tools you can use to engage and be seen.
2: Right, and that's, that's and that's what I'm saying. So I call it, like I said, I, I, I've never, I don't know what other people call it, but I wrote an essay a while back and talked about this with Ghost and Jam, and sort of a fool's goal, a sort of a, a way to sort of keep the reader engaged. Um, and, and that's sort of important too, because obviously when someone's coming with an eye, they're trying to talk about their truth. So I'm totally respectful of that sort of like that 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 sort of way in which someone's doing something. But what I'm what I'm saying is, you know, don't don't stop there. Like there's some other stuff that could happen too. And don't you know? And maybe not, but you got to try. You got to think about it. You always got to be thinking about these things. Sometimes they just don't work. And you need to just tell the poem the way you tell the poem. I get it. And sometimes that just happens like that. You know, I have poems like that. Well, all that other stuff is fine, but sometimes it just needs to be said. But in the context of a manuscript or a collection, you definitely want to have that variety. And you want to let, you know, you want to take your reader on many journeys instead of like this one specific journey, if you can. I mean, that's my, that's my belief, you know, so um, yeah. I don't know if I answered that question totally, but- it, well, it, I,
1: what, what I hear is that sometimes uh, using an eye and having that, uh, that strong voice of the eye can also create a barrier between the speaker and the audience. Right. Whereas if you pull back and you have more of a narrative voice or you use second person, that yeah. can be more open to the audience experiencing it rather than blocking off and saying, oh, that's what Randall went through. Randall's talking, yeah. that's him. I can listen, and if I'm interested, I'll get engaged. Right. But it's not yeah. gonna be about me. Whereas yeah. something more open, oh, wow, that is a share. You know, there is a share. <laughs> I think I might steal
2: mind. that. I think you took it right out of my <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, you said it. I just, I, it just right. You just,
2: just articulated it. Yeah, I mean, no, that's totally it. I think you know you hit the nail on the head. I think you know you got to invite other people into it, like totally. And if you don't, then you risk you risk that sort of distance, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily want that because our porches are already a hard sell enough. You want to definitely create that with the reader. And I would think that the reader, you know, that's by picking up a book of poetry a lot of times, maybe understands or thinks about that. But what about the one who doesn't, who's just coming to that? And they were like, well, I don't know. He's not talking about me. He's talking about his stuff. Maybe it's interesting and maybe it's not. But if he includes these other things where I can sort of like maybe engage in that, then we got another thing going. So, yeah. It's
0: interesting because the question I gave was about... What does a personalist political mean to you or what does truth to power mean to you? You seemed in your answer a little resistant to the idea that these are meaningful phrases, which is fine,
2: but I'd yeah. like to explore a little bit more about Yeah. That. It I guess I'm a little more like uh, so it all comes to me I guess from the beginning with like people like um cuz you cuz from I mean early on I think when we start teaching creative writing we start teaching writers and we tell them to write their truth and all and I get all of that and that is, that is true. But I think at some point you have to understand your truth in the poem might not add up. Yeah, yeah. And if you them hold them. on to that truth, yeah. then the poem is going to fail yeah. sometimes, oftentimes. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is, is that I don't care whether you made a left turn or a right turn, which turn is the right turn to get me to understand what you did. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And so I think a lot of times, I see this in, in beginning writers who still trying to figure it out a lot of times Like I just got to tell it the way it happened. If not, then I just can't write it And I think that's sort of like I don't I don't necessarily agree with that. I think um, I think And it goes back to the creative nonfiction, but this is poetry. This is a whole different This is this is a whole different thing right here And how do you sort of attack that so truth the power there is truth and there is power. I get all that but i'm just saying if you write with that and you like this is my total truth and I can't get it, and I can't bend to that And I think you're making a you that's a that's a dangerous path to go down Because you're missing the moments when you can really make more out of it and It just goes back to your point like because You can learn more from fiction than you can in reality and if and if this this moment in time hasn't taught you that enough <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like I'm in a fictional movie and the writer hasn't figured out the ending
1: yet. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to explore that. You're, you're teaching at uh, New Haven University. University of New Haven, yeah. Coming to the, uh, the end of a semester. How is it? How are the students doing? How are you doing? How is this transition working out? And what does is, what is the uh, intermediate future look like?
2: Well, that's a whole lot. I mean, I'll just start with how me and the students are doing. I mean, I can't, and here's the, the thing. I think it, it, it caught us off, you know, all of a sudden we were in class and then we're not. Um, and then each student has, every student is different. Some are in the dorms, they had to leave. Some had to find safer housing. Some had to find, you know, uh, sort of, you um, different way to sort of like get online some of them had internet issues There was a whole some people had family members had covid or was going through that. I mean I had one student in um, It was a puerto rico, you know, like a grandmother or a, grand, uh, a mom and so she's and so they're dealing with all of that And then there's the coursework which had to move online, right and so the first two or three weeks man, you know, it's like Everybody's trying to get their head on um And we as teachers um, and so this is the thing students don't you know, I had to I had to Sort of reiterate to my students like I'm not you're not experiencing this alone Like I am with I am in this too and I don't want to seem like i'm sort of like greater than something So we're we're going through this together and So I i'm going to understand and meet you wherever I got to meet you in order for us to get through the semester Right because you didn't sign up for this and I get it but at the same time you didn't sign up to sort of fail the class um, and so I became what for me it became a so it it has become until my grades are in an idea of like taking the students and sort of pushing them and having them get certain stuff and become even more creative with how I deliver how I accept assignments from them the type of assignments I accept and whether they're going to learn and if that means I have to go Zoom conferences one on one and we have to talk and get to talk things out about so there's a whole that's why I say I've become more busier now than I have when I think when I was teaching because all of these things having paid, having to pay attention to the student you know really takes a toll so um with that said they're trying to sort of get through the semester and um for some they just opted for a pass fail grade which sort of you know they can pass or so fail to some you know I wanted all of them to sort of like try to push it out and get a grade so and get a you know you know a or b or something like that even to see how that works because a lot of them sort of went dark and like you didn't hear from them for a minute right so and so we have to contact students, hey, are you okay, you need, you know, and some are constantly emailing about, man, I'm, I'm, you know, Dr. Horton, I'm sorry, you know, I'm going through this, and what, what am I gonna, I'm not gonna be a heart, you know, I'm not gonna be that, I'm not gonna be that teacher who's sort of like, still holding on to this rigid, you know, thing while we are online in the middle of a pandemic, which happens. So I just, I didn't wanna do that. So my, my thing is, my, you know, I just sent an email this morning, I told my students, if you got anything else to give me, grades are due tomorrow, literally, before I submit them. Like I need everything, and I want, I'm giving you every opportunity to sort of like do what you need to do. Because I could have stopped this on May 8th when the, in last day of class. Why? So, you know, we're all going through it and, and, the, and the future is sort of like really un- uncertain right now. Um, Even with us as faculty, we've had to take pay cuts. We had, you know, we got our 401k, um, temporarily stopped, you know, contributions and we're facing a reorganization. And so a lot of, a lot of, a lot of universities are, are understanding that we can't go back to the way we were before this happened. And so we're in the process, um, you know, we still, you know, some of us are thinking about jobs. Like we don't know, um, mm. who's going to be cut or, you know, how they're going to, you know, create. It make up the, the, the budget for that that that, that money that sort that, of that's that's going to be lost and going to continue to be lost. So there's a lot of factors behind this man, and um, you know, it's just it's it's literally you know, in each university probably is a little different, but if you look around the country, they're all facing sort of the similar things. And so right now we're trying to protect as many faculty as we can. Um, you know, the people who have been there. Um, in but there there is no protection you know um they you know because we just sort of we just might the president just uh declared a state of emergency i mean the the board of governors declare a state of emergency which gives the president um exacting authority to sort of like dismiss people if you know underperformance or whatever like that even if you got tenure mm. so it's really interesting right now um in, in in higher ed especially where we are so we're really facing an on un- on un- on un- on un- Uncertain future, but we're planning for scenarios in which we, we can envision being online You know, but we don't know how the students are going to react. We don't know if they're going to come back We don't know how they're feeling. We don't know if incoming students are going to come now or they want to defer for a year. So there's a lot of things so Incoming students are probably going to defer more than um, those juniors and seniors who want to sort of finish them Because they understand that at some point they're going to get to get out here in the world so it becomes very interesting and so you can't necessarily say anything until the first day of class we can really open up summer session soon i think they're going to open connecticut up you know and we're going to have to have all of the you know the ppe's in place the testing in place the spacing in place um we're not sure how we're going to even do you know like we're going to do many semesters in terms of we have different so you know have different people come in and then other people come in and then you know that way the dorms can be spaced out and we can have these spaces so there's a multitude of scenarios that are like happening right now and we can't grab our hand on one of them to say this is where i'm going to be
0: oh my god just sitting with uncertainty and trying to figure out day by day
2: what's yeah you know first of all you want to do you still have a job Yeah, but then you got to plan on some stuff you know and i don't you know we, you know we just you know they they you know they at one time they said tenure was you know was a, like the one thing but this is the one thing that's sort of like I don't know but yeah, I think to be they, fair yeah. um they're saying that they don't want to you know it's just it's just a police it's, it's an interesting thing that you know maybe underperforming faculty or something like that but there's some there's some ways in which the president wants to cut that he can't do he couldn't do unless they declared that yeah, and so we're trying to work together as a university to eat to make to make it work. So we just, he just offered an early retirement. We see how many people take that. There's some other things that we're trying to do. Um, and so we'll see as it gets closer um, to the time when you have to make some hard decisions.
0: You know? Also, I think this speaks to is uh, one of the answers you gave was about the question was what essential truth do you believe um, is undervalued by society? you say the truth is we never look, look close enough to uh, see who we're pulling the strings to our actions that, Isms prevail in society, you know, these belief structures are prevailing rather than seeing what's out there. I'd like you to expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, like, uh, what do you think uh, (laughs) in in, in relationship with you're talking about like this whole pandemic? How we're almost getting blinded by ideology, I think. Do you agree, right? No,
2: and that's part of it as well. We're getting back by by the ideologies of the left or right and in between, exactly. Um, exactly. We should be seeing the
0: reality of the situation. Right, and I God. think,
2: and I think, and I think, I was, I was talking about that sometimes um, when we talk about the literary community and the structures that's in place to sort of praise or, you know. So I have to be careful because I think a lot of times when I someone talk about these things, people think that I'm tend to sort of like dismissing something or missing so dismissing someone, which I'm totally not. I'm just saying, look at the structures and is it in place and. You know, in terms of different awards and different, you know, judges and different things. Yeah, are I mean, I, we could, thats thats a whole other conversation yeah, that we could yeah. probably have, totally. Yeah. But it's—it's—it's a—it's a reality that if you're—if you got two eyes, sometimes and you got to have a brain, you can throw to think. Yeah. And that's why I say by sometimes there are certain things that that offer sort of gratitude and sort of recognition, but they come with a sort of a price or sort of with a stamp of like. This is this, and this is that, and this is perpetuating this ideology and this ideology and that ideology, which is fine sometimes. But I think we as writers, because you know, every you know, we as writers have to understand what it is that we're trying to do, and not get caught up and believe all of that. That's the bigger thing, because all of us want praise and all, and you know, recognition for our work. That's totally understandable. But I think sometimes we we have to understand, you know, what that message means to the larger world uh, the larger literary world, the larger writers and how they're sort of perceiving these things, right? And so, um Yeah, there's just there's just instances and like, you know, you know different foundation works have different missions Like you're not going to get that money unless you supply that unless you talk about that mission I mean, that's I get it But i'm saying you have to understand what that is as it goes, you know in sort of like the history of that in terms of things that have sort of happened and sort of like the sort of study about this sort of structure in society, this sort of structure in society, or how people sort of move in this direction or that direction. And I'm not a, you know, conspiracy theorist or anything like that. I just like, I just, I'm just like my grandma, I just have common sense. So um, that's sort of what I mean by that, you know, um, that idea of like being understand who pulls the strings um, and Mm -hmm. who's giving the money and why they're giving it and it's okay to take. I mean, it's okay to sort of be a part of that and be celebrated, but I think sometimes, you know, you can get caught up in that and then you lose your way a little bit in, in, in terms of what you, which, why you started out with this, this whole journey of writing, right? Why did you, how did you know, why was that? And so I've seen that happen. I mean, you know, I just have. So and I've seen situations where I can't probably I would I would never disclose. Yeah. But I just know too much, man. You know, back channel, I've heard about so much stuff that would make your head spin <laughs> about different things. Um, you know, wars, grants, all of these things. Like there's there's some narratives going on, man. I mean, so I didn't ask for them, they just came to me. Yeah. But are they, you know, should I ignore them if I knew them to be true?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: That's what I say for that, man. I'm not trying to be cryptic. But at the same time, to sort of really go down the road, I gotta put people on blast, and I'm not trying to put on blast, so. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying with that as well. I'm just saying, just be, just understand, you know, the structure in which we work. And when you see stuff pointed at, you know, presented to you, think about it, think about it. And it could be nothing, but it could be sort of like an ideology or sort of a mission. And that mission could be fine. But I think you need to understand that. So that's like,
0: yeah, I agree. And I think that a lot of times, you know, people are hesitant. I mean, there's different fences. At least for me, personally, in my journey, sometimes I feel like, oh, you know, I have to focus on myself, my own development, all that kind of thing. I don't think about the structures as much, but it's important to, like, I'm almost like there's a fear of calling out structures. There's a fear of, you know, right. kind of like, will I be targeted, will I be, you kind of well, that's part you
2: of know. what I do because I mean I don't yeah. care and, yeah. and I do care, but I don't because I mean I'm, I'm always like, for me, I should never even been in this position. I should, you know, I, I was supposed to do my time and get out of prison and probably go back. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like every day is sort of like a gift. Yeah. And I feel like you know, um, I feel like yeah, I mean, like, I've al- am I already in a place where I'm, you know, I, I never thought I would be. So I'm okay. Like every day is a blessing for me, man. Um, and I'm not trying to call anybody and be that person, but I do think getting back to poetry and sort of like so if you look at two eight two nine two eight nine one two eight, the last section is totally about calling out structures. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so totally oh, yeah, yeah. in a lot of ways sort of beware of the band leader. There's a play there's a there's a poem in there called Beware the Band Leader uh, and, it's a, and, and it just talks about the ways in which, you know, someone, you know, you have to beware of those that those who are rallying the troops or whatever so there's, so I, I use it in that mode, but I'm not going to sort of like be, you know, I'm, I'm very, I try to be very empathetic in, in the way I do these things, but I'm not going to shy away from them. I think, yeah, of course, you know, of course, yeah. I don't yeah. know. It so, may be, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I just want to quickly do a couple of shout outs. You're
0: listening to radio for Brooklyn, independent <coughs> listener, supported radio, the truth to power show on radio for Brooklyn. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, if you'd like to listen to RFE when you're not in front of your computer, if you're all listening in front of your computer, Please consider downloading our free mobile apps for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or Google Play Store for Android. Um, be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about news programming, upcoming RFP events. You can sign up at radyfreebrooklyn.org newsletter. And then also, um, you know, we understand that COVID-19 is, dis- is uh, disrupting everyone's lives right now. Radio for is no exception. We want you to know that we have made every effort to make sure the health and well-being of our host staff and community at large. We've closed both the studios and canceled our live events, but our hosts are still doing their best to continue bringing new original programming by broadcasting live from home, that's what we're doing, and pre-recording from their home studios, or by selecting the best pre broadcasts from the past shows. With our revenue stream evaporated, we need your help. We realize that you may be hurting too. But you can afford a small donation we should go a long way towards helping us stay on air these are ways you can help first you can go to the one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyflicken.org donate there you'll find some great t-shirts mugs and other swag um, we can also use your phone to rfb give five that's number five to four four three two one it only takes a moment and you'll be able to use your digital wallet for your donation Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you can go to amazon.com slash smile and register Ready for Brooklyn as a nonprofit of your choice to support. What you, When you do, percentage of your sales will go to RFB. to cost you nothing. No dishes too big or small, whatever you can afford will make a huge difference. We thank you with the bottom of our hearts and wish all listeners health and happiness as we storm together. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about uh, your music, um, your music, your avant-garde jazz group, uh, and then we'll try to listen to a little bit of the song uh from uh tell us a little bit about heroes or gang leaders and um the name of the album again
2: the name of the, ga- the album is uh, artificial happiness button um and um it, it this is uh comes off of the our, um, amir baraka sessions project um which um actually received the best vocals jazz vocals for npr um and so with this new collection uh, with this new this new album rather excuse me um you have a collection of musicians and poets, that sort of like to, trying to expand upon the, you know, the mission in which they were started, and that was sort of to celebrate the work of Amir Baraka. But then we've sort of taken it to another level in terms of um, um, exploring our own creativity, our own songs, our own chord structures, and things like that. Um, and so, what this what this project does is sort of tried to build off all of that, and it came out May twentieth. Um that's I mean, March the twentieth. And so we're kind of proud of it. We were able to um, you know, perform some of it. Um uh, we we just we, we, before all this happened, we were in Lips in Portugal. Um we were able to do a show, um, jazz festival, and we were able to sort of like um debut some of the some of that music. Um but yeah, there's a sort of like it's this is sort of a, a project that's sort of we've been we worked on it probably for about three years. Um there's a couple of pieces that's sort of, um, that's always getting around the literary. We're always interested in literary things and um, um, G- Gertrude Stein, perhaps an Etheridge name, Brooks. So we always sort of like in- infusing like the literary giants in our work, Zaki Shange. Um, and so um, with that, this is what we're trying to do I don't know if I answered your question, so I want to make sure I know. Yeah, no,
0: it gives you a little bit of a chance for us to listen to some of the music.
2: Yeah, and we yeah. came together, yeah. At, at, yeah, I just wanted to let the listeners know, we came together at Amir Baraka's funeral, um, and we're about 10, 11 deep, With most 10 to 11 deep, um, and, um, and the musicians each have their own jazz avant-garde bands, and they all do their own thing, But so we're a collection that have the, have our own projects, but we come together, for this project so everybody in this have their own band james brandon lewis trio Irre- irreversible entanglements um and then uh, one of our singers she does broadway um, um and um uh, another one of our singers of uh, the violin player she works with sun rock orchestra um so we're doing we, we all over the place but we come together for this project so.
0: okay so um which song shall i'll just start with the first song i guess and then we'll end with that but I just want to give last call to anyone, uh, Bruce, or to give any last comments, or last questions, and then we'll end with the song. So any last things, any last thoughts? Yeah.
1: I just want to thank Randall for joining us. It's been fascinating talking to you today and uh, really looking forward to your new book and uh, and with all the work you're doing with your students and uh, musically and, and poetically uh, good luck to you. Thank you so much for today. Thanks, Bruce. It
2: was very nice talking with you. Nice meeting you, man. Hopefully we can fellowship again sometime soon. That'd be great.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thank
0: you. Thank you. So this is the Truth to Power Show and Ready for Brooklyn. We air every Monday at 8 a.m. So thank you. We'll listen to uh, Artificial Happiness Button, I think. So um, yep. Let's listen to the first it. track on the song. It's a, it's a title track. And then um, enjoy, enjoy. Thank you so much, guys.
2: Thank you. Thank you, thank you DJ. Yeah Which you embark upon In other words You know I'm that joker Take it where you need to go Can you play the ups game? Get up Press up and counter. Here's a whiz This word of wisdom: <laughs> Oh ain't nobody mad But the folks that don't get none Don't be mad This carry 24K though what the is you're missing for a step or like there. That top flight show five with a shop. Triple B mathematics. Everybody here sold out. Standing room only. Can't get none sleep but a dream. Yeah. <laughs> Tell him, teach me how to swim, I can drown with the best of it. Cause every shut I ain't sleep. Both eyes be closed wide awake. Got that fizzing, leave you spellbound.